like to open your Bibles to Job chapter 23. We're going to be looking at that chapter this morning, the entire chapter 1 through 17. This is our ongoing, part of our ongoing series through Job, God and Suffering. God and Suffering. So we're looking at Job 23, 1 through 17. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth in this passage. We want to know the true meaning. Help us understand it. First and foremost, Lord, we need to understand your word, what it originally meant to the original readers. And then also, Lord, we want to apply it. So allow us to take the truths that you teach us and apply them into our lives so we can serve you and live for you in a more holy and more reverent way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a businessman who was eating lunch and he bit into something very hard and he broke a tooth. And it was loud enough for everyone at the table to hear it. And he immediately put his hand to his, his mouth and, and probed the area with his tongue. And sure enough, there was shooting pain. After a few more minutes, it was a dull ache and throb. And then after a few more minutes, he, he couldn't concentrate on anything else except the pain. So he went to his dentist and he walked in and he asked for an appointment. He said, I, I need to be seen. I think I broke my tooth. And the receptionist smiled and said, well, the doctor's very busy. Uh, but why don't I make you an appointment? He said, well, I, I think I broke my tooth. It's a lot of pain. She said, well, he's, he's very busy. What, how about an appointment? Let me see what the first available is. He said, well, I guess I could wait till tomorrow if I had to. Um, okay. And she said, all right, well, let me see here. And she typed on the computer and said, hmm, looks like the, the next available is next Thursday at 2.30. How does that work for you? He said, I don't think that's going to work. Can't, can't he just numb it or, or cap it or extract it or whatever he's going to do? And it won't take long. And just then he saw past the receptionist's office, kind of down the hall, his line of sight allowed him to see all the way down into what looked like a break room, and there was the dentist drinking some coffee, kind of talking and laughing with one of the hygienists, and, and he said, no, there he is right there, hey doc, and he called out, and, and just then the doctor kind of moved back out of the line of sight, and at this point the receptionist was getting less patient, she said, sir, uh, I can either make an appointment for you, or I think I'm going to have to ask you to leave. The doctor was unavailable, even for an emergency. In our passage this morning, Job, from his perspective, God seems unavailable. God seems like he's, he's stepped out of sight for just a moment. God seems like he's, he's maybe too busy or, or too important to, to get a hold of. Job says he cannot find God. Now, it's true that God is a spirit, God is invisible, but is it true that he can't be found. Is it true that, that God is difficult to find? Is, is he like the businessman's dentist who's, who's trying not to be uh, found? Is he, is he hiding in the back somewhere, uh, trying to, to keep to himself? Of course not. In fact, our God has an open-door policy. 
And as we open up Job chapter 23 today, first and foremost, we're going to unpack this verse by verse. We need to understand what's happening. But then we're also going to talk about God's open door policy and how that may help us in our evangelistic efforts. So let's take a look at the, the whole chapter. It's one of the shorter chapters of Job, just 17 verses. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast in his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn it back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made me faint. My heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. So verse 1, as we begin, it reminds us of the context of this chapter. We're not simply pulling these verses out of thin air. They're, they're in the context of an ongoing back and forth dialogue between Job and his three friends. So he is answering. This is part of his response to a life has from the previous chapter in uh, chapter 22. And verse 2 shows us he's all still, also still feeling the suffering. None of those things that happened at the beginning of the book have gone away. His children are all dead. He's still covered from head to foot in loathsome sores. He's still experiencing excruciating pain. He's still lost all his wealth, all his possessions. He has nothing. All of that is still there. His life is bitter and he feels weighed down. So he's still in a bad place. Even though he's still suffering, Job desires to meet. So verses 3 through 5 is Job expressing this desire to come before God and before God's throne, if he could. Job wants to meet with God. Job wants to meet with God. Now we've seen him express this a few times before in previous chapters. Uh, he wants his day in court with God. He wants to plead his case. And Job is willing to bring his A-game to this meeting with God. When it says, I know what he would answer me and understand what he would say, Job is saying, I would, I would be there, I would be on the ball enough to understand what God is, is saying. I would be right there, I would be able to engage God as I meet with him and have my day in court. Verse 6, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? In other words, would God strong arm me? Would, would God, with all his strength and mighty and power, simply bellow in his thunderous voice and, and knock me back and so I wouldn't even have a chance to, to plead my case. I wouldn't be able to speak and then he says, 
he answers his own question, no, he would pay attention to me. Now, how is Job so confident that he would be allowed to speak before God? Why, why does Job know that God would answer him? And verse 7 tells us, because Job is in the right. He says, there an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Job is still maintaining his innocence. Job is still maintaining his position that he has not done something to deserve this heavy-handed punishment that has come upon him. Verses 8 through 9, Job cannot find God. Forward, backward, left hand, right hand. You hear all that language that he's, that he's going through. It uh, doesn't matter where Job turns or looks for God, he's not there, or so Job thinks. This is from Job's perspective. Maybe God's too busy. I go forward, he's not there. Backward, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, maybe God's too busy to be seen. He's a very busy man. Next available is, is a month from next Tuesday. Job can't find him. Verses 10 through 12, he describes his innocence. Even though Job cannot see or find God, he has confidence that, that God sees him. He says, but he knows the way that I take. So here we have in verses 10 through 12, Job hanging on tight to the truth. Remember, last week we looked at, at Job 22. This was a life as spinning and delivering this false narrative that says, no, Job, you're this guy that has, has blown it. Um, and then he even listed all these specific sins that Job had never done. It, it was just a story. It was a made-up story designed to portray an alternate reality that wasn't true. So there was this false narrative that was being thrust upon Job. And Job here, the antidote or the answer to that false narrative is to hang on tight to the truth. And so this is what he's doing. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way. I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have loved, or excuse me, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion for food. So did you hear that strong, hanging on to the truth language? Job's rejecting the false narrative and saying, no, uh, that's not it. He keeps hammering away on his innocence. Now remember, not sinless perfection. Job's not claiming to have a, a sinlessly perfect life, uh, someone that, that doesn't need God's grace. No, he's maintaining the fact that he is blameless, upright, he fears God, he's turned from evil. He has not lived in a way, and has, he has not practiced evil in his life to deserve this sort of um, instant response, temporal punishment from God and, and judgment in this life. And then verse 13, acceptance, uh, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? God is unstoppable, no one can harness God. No one can stop God from acting. What he desires, that he does. Verse 14, for you will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Job is wondering, if God has done this to him, what else is he going to do? What else does God have in mind for Job? And that worries him. In fact, that terrifies him. Verses 15 and 16, therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. And then verses, uh, verse 17, um, verse 17, the ESV translation carries the meaning of Job continuing to speak even though he is covered in darkness. And that's why it begins with yet. 
Could be. Uh, the, the problem is the, the Hebrew in Job is some of the most difficult Hebrew in the entire Old Testament. And so we've got a lot of words that can usually only be deciphered in context, but if the context is unclear, it makes it very difficult. So yet could also be translated as for. The word for not could be surely. Silence could be to cut off, to put an end to. So we could have what the ESV has translated here, or we could also have something like this, for I was surely destroyed in the presence of darkness, and thick darkness covers my face. It could have just been a, a last little tagline on the end of this being afraid of him, and, and that's why he's afraid of him. Or it could also be um, something that he puts at the end that says, in contrast, so yet I'm, I'm still going to speak despite all these things that have happened. Either one works, but I think the latter one makes, or excuse me, the, uh, the one where he's covered in darkness uh, makes better sense based on the context. Open door policy. So if we had to summarize this chapter, chapter 23, we'd say a weary Job longs for his day in court before God is his judge. But before that can happen, God has to be found. And from Job's perspective, God cannot be found. Job thinks that God is hard to find. But if he does find him, and if he is allowed to speak before God, he is confident that he will be acquitted. So Job knows that if he can find a meet with God, God will declare him to be righteous. Now that's not exactly how we would present the gospel to someone. We wouldn't say to an unbeliever or an acquaintance that we might have or an unbelieving family member, if you can find God, he will acquit you and declare you righteous. That's not how we would share the gospel. We would come at it and say, God can be found if you turn to him in repentance and belief, he will declare you righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and not your own righteous record. That's, that's the gospel that we would present. So why do we see this difference here? Why do we see Job in, in 23 desiring to meet with God and saying, I know I'm going to be counted as innocent, uh, but I just can't seem to find him. God seems to be missing. Maybe he's in the back drinking coffee somewhere. But if I could find him, I know I would be declared righteous. What's the difference there? There are two key differences. Number one, Job is counting on his righteous record to secure his acquittal. And number two, for Job, at least from his perspective, God seems difficult to find. Those are the differences between why Job could say what he says and why we present the gospel very differently. So let's take a look at each one of those by themselves. Job, number one, Job is counting on his righteous record to secure his acquittal. Job is longing for this day in court with God because he knows that his life does not match that false narrative that life has painted in chapter 22. Job knows that he has not lived in such a way, he has not practiced unrighteousness. He has not been this wicked man uh, day in and day out with some kind of, maybe even outward uh, kind of sanitized version of, of himself that he presents to other people, but then when nobody else is looking, he's this, this mean, devious man who's always trying to accumulate more wealth and, and going about it in deceitful ways. He knows that's not it. He knows that's not it. So he wants his day in court. He is very confident, and he's right. And here's the thing, we need to remember that the book of Job was not written to teach us on the doctrine of total depravity. 
Job is not sinlessly perfect. Job, Job is not someone who is an exception to everyone else in the Bible, and, and he, of all people, does not need God's grace. That's not true. Job is still a sinner. Job is still saved by faith. But that's not what this book is teaching. This book is written to provide us with Job as a type of Christ who was up here and was brought down and experienced suffering and then was once again at the end of the book exalted. It's designed to point us to the person of Jesus Christ and his uh, bringing down from heaven, becoming incarnate, experiencing suffering, and then being exalted and raised up again. That's what this book is about. This book is designed to address the topic of God and suffering, specifically undeserved suffering that people experience in this life. That's what this book is written about. So of course Job is a sinful man. So when he talks about holding fast to God's way, you heard that language in the chapter here, not departing from God's commands, he's maintaining his position that he hasn't led this double life with with secret sin. He isn't that man that they're making him out to be. He hasn't done something or lived in such a way to bring this, this temporal judgment upon him. We're supposed to view Job in this light. In fact, God shows up at the end of this book and affirms that that's how we're supposed to view Job in this, in this book. Job is acquitted. Job does come out as gold at the end. Remember, that's how what chapter 42 is all about. Job survives. He's exalted. He's lifted up again. So when we see that language about wanting to appear before God and knowing that I'm going to be acquitted, that's what he's referring to. He's not talking about uh, if I find God, he will automatically declare me righteous because I've lived such a good life that he has to do that. That's not what's going on. He's talking about this particular situation, and that's affirmed for us at the end of Job in chapter 42. In contrast, the gospel uh, is not talking about a specific situation where one of us, God has selected to be a type of Christ, and we've had this uh, you know, up here type of greatest man in all the East, East, and then we've been brought down and then we've been raised up again to point future believers to Christ. That's not who we are. That's not what's going on. This was a one-time, non-repeatable event. This was a key player in God's redemptive plan. Uh, we're not. We're not. We just need to own up to that fact. We're not Job. In contrast, the, the gospel teaches that we're all sinful. We all need a Savior. And because of our sinful record, we need a righteousness that is not our own. We need an alien righteousness. We need a righteousness that is outside of us to be imputed to us. If we expect to be acquitted before the judge, then we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I hope we understand how, how that works. Uh, we're, we're not perfect human beings, not even close. We cannot be good enough to be acquitted before the judge. We'll all have that that day where we stand before the judge. And if we stand before him and say, yeah, I, I think my life's good enough. I, I've tried to live in a way that, that I don't need to ask for forgiveness because you know, I've, I've tried to do the right thing and, and I think compared to everyone else and, and the whole of humanity, I'm confident God will declare me righteous and, and let me into heaven. If that's the case, then we're going to be very disappointed. None of us, Scripture repeatedly teaches, none of us can get into heaven or the kingdom of God on our own righteous record. Instead, we need to turn 
to the one who has that righteous record, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only one, more than Job, more than Moses, more than anybody else in the history of the church or the Bible or the world. He's the only person ever to have this perfect, righteous record. We need that because it's the only thing God accepts. So when we turn to Jesus in faith and we say, yes, I am a sinner, my record is not good enough to get into heaven, please forgive my sin and accept me. God says, I will. Come on in. He says, yes, I forgive your sin. I will now declare you righteous because I've imputed or credited the righteousness of my perfect son to your account, to you, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filthy rags. He doesn't see our sin. He sees that perfect record of righteousness. And we're given new life, it says. We're given a new heart, new desires. We desire God. We desire the things of God. We're hungry for God's word. We want more teaching. We, we, we want more Jesus in our life. And that begins a lifelong process of, of walking by faith and sanctification, which means uh, being continually formed into the image of God continually more and more dying to sin and more and more being brought to new, new life in Christ. So that's the difference. Um, we're not expecting to be acquitted because we have a righteous record. That's something that Job, Job is talking about that's unique to his specific cir circumstances. The, the gospel is much more, more broad and it's concerning all of humanity and uh, I think it's very important to point out that difference. So that's number one. Number two, Job believes God cannot be found or is difficult to find. Before Job can have this day before the Lord in court, he has to find the judge. And until that happens, he's, he's not going to be able to have that happen. So he's on the lookout. He's not here. I do not behold him. I do not see him. God seems strangely absent from Job's perspective, unable to be found. Now, it's not like Job hasn't reached out. If you've been with us through this sermon series, through the book of Job so far, you've, you've heard this. You've heard this before. Job has been longing for his day. If you remember back in chapter 9, Job was there desiring to, to lay his case before God. And if you remember also, that was the chapter where he, he asked for an arbiter or a mediator, someone who would speak on his behalf and plead his case and act as kind of a buffer zone between man and God. And of course, he was talking about Jesus Christ. So he's been asking for this day for a while. But from Job's perspective, God does not want to be found. He does not want to be with him. Now, of course, that's not true. Of course, it's not true that God doesn't want to be found. But from Job's perspective, it seems like it. Maybe you know someone who has had similar thoughts. Maybe you know someone who, who has thought that God does not want to be found or that, that doesn't want to meet with them. And I think as we head into the, the Christmas season here with family get-togethers and a lot of uh, bringing together people that we might only see once or twice a year or uh, acquaintances or friends or even just kind of uh, once-a-year opportunities to talk about the gospel, to share Jesus with people. I think this is something that's very timely. As we think about our interactions with unbelieving family and friends and relatives, 
they might be bringing some of this baggage with them. They might be thinking along the lines of Job that, that God can't be found. Maybe God doesn't want to be found from their perspective. Uh, God uh, prefers to remain detached from creation, aloof, kind of uh, above it all. He created everything, but now he kind of has a hands-off type of policy. He has the time, but he doesn't want to talk to people. Uh, hiding out in the break room with a cup of coffee, maybe. Or even, uh, even to the point of adopting what we've called this hyper-low view of man. We've seen that as we've gone through the series, and we'll see it again in chapter 25. It's on the same page if you want to glance at it. Uh, Bildad presents this hyper-low view of man where God thinks of us as maggots or worms. That's the language he uses. No, that's, that's not it. God doesn't look down his nose at people. Or maybe God is too busy. After all, he has a universe to run. God's a very busy man. Answering prayers, providentially overseeing the movement of the stars, the planets, the weather patterns, the ocean currents, all the animal kingdom, directing kings, nations, rulers, authority. God doesn't have time to come out and meet with people one-on-one. -on -one. He's a busy God. That might be the position that some hold. Or God's too, God is too important. Getting to God is too difficult. God is a, like a big shot VIP surrounded by security angels that are, that are holding people back and, and several layers of a front desk type of receptionist people that are designed to make sure that nobody reaches God. Only maybe priests and pastors are able to gain access to the inner sanctum and, and speak with him directly. But in the meantime, God, God's not very accessible. Well, the Bible teaches us otherwise. Luke 12, 6 through 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The idea that God does not want to be found or he doesn't want to meet with someone simply isn't true. In fact, God's entire redemptive plan centers around it becoming incarnate, becoming down and meeting with people. God has gone out of his way to meet with people. His redemptive plan centers around gathering, calling a people to himself and through the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying them and presenting, to, presenting them as holy. So Job thought that God could not be found, but in the end he had a very unique experience with God and in the end God showed up. Uh, remember that's what 42 is all about. He showed up in a way that could be perceived by the senses. Now, we should not expect God to show up in that way, like we discussed just a moment ago. We're not Job. Um, neither are we any of the other major key figures in, in biblical history. We should not expect an audible voice to speak out of the clouds whenever we ask God a question. That's not how God ordinarily reveals himself. I remember speaking with a, a co-worker several years ago, and we had a lot of little um, kind of hallway conversations at, at work where, we, where he would talk and, and, and I'd answer and we'd go back and forth and I gave him some scripture passages to read and finally, right before our conversations came to an end, this was the last thing he said, 
yeah, I get all that, but the, I, I just want him to show up. Is that too much to ask? If God would just show up once, then I think I, I would, this would all make sense and I would have no problem believing in him. That's not how God chooses to ordinarily act. I didn't, but, I, but I, what I could have said to this co-worker is, but you're not Job. You're not Abraham. You're not Moses. Well, God showed up to, to Joseph in a dream, and he, and he talked to Mary about it. I said, yeah, but you're not Joseph, and you're not Mary. And neither are we. God did that at key moments as he, he, as he unfolded his, his redemptive plan. But the last, the, the next thing on the, uh, on the interstate overhead sign as we're driving down the redemptive road here is Christ's return. That, that we're not going to have another incarnate birth. We're not going to have another uh, uh, prophet like Moses. Or we're not going to have anything like that. The next thing from the cross is Christ's return. We're not going to have another big redemptive shift in God's plan. The next thing is the end. So... I would put our chances of experiencing a, a direct voice or a vision from God at less than uh, a tenth of a percent, if that. That's not how he ordinarily reveals himself. So because people cannot see God, we make a mistake of concluding sometimes that he can't be found or that he doesn't want to be found or that he doesn't want to meet with his people. And I think we can help our unbelieving family members and friends and acquaintances get there if we can show them that he is to be found, he wants to be found, and they can meet with God right now, immediately. He's not too busy, he's not too important, he's not in the back with a cup of coffee, he is available. No one has to set up an appointment with God. He's not booked out several weeks with the first available four months from today. He is available right now, he has an open door policy. Walk-ins welcome. He is available. The open door policy and the door is Jesus Christ. That door is open. John 10, 7, so Jesus said again, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. And that door is wide open. I think it's helpful, again, if we're thinking about an evangelistic conversation to, to tell people what to expect. First of all, we tell them, don't expect a, a vision from God or an audible voice or God to, to speak to you in a way that's clear and like someone's in the room. Don't, don't expect that. But I think it is helpful to tell them what to expect. If you can remember, I think for most of us it was quite a while ago, but do you remember getting your driver's license? Do you remember going for the, the practical exam? I remember as a, as a teenager in high school, it was, it was very nerve-wracking. And one thing that helped me was to talk to my friends who had already done it. And so I asked them a question, well, what happened? Did they, did they have you park on a hill and, and turn, turn your wheel towards the curb? They said, no, they didn't do that. But they did have me park, parallel park. So get ready for that. Oh, okay. I think letting someone know ahead of time what, what it's about, what it's happening, it just kind of puts them at ease and it makes them a little more comfortable. And in terms of coming to Christ, it might make them a little more uh, willing to, to explore. So here are some things to expect. Expect to be confronted and convicted of sin. 
If someone's never come to Christ before and they're wondering what's this all about, well, it's not about God appearing to you, but do expect to be confronted and convicted of your sin. Expect to, for the first time, maybe feel guilty for some of the things you have done and, and are doing because they're sin and because they're an offense against God who created you. And, and so expect that. Expect to feel the weight of that sin and a real need for forgiveness. That, that's something that, that is part and parcel to, to being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Expect to see personally how God has provided an open door for you not just in general terms of, you know, yeah, I've heard that the Bible, you know, different accounts and things. No. Christ went to the cross and he took names. The, the blood that Jesus shed was, was not a blood that, that goes out and covers the sins of every single man, woman, and child who's ever lived. The Bible teaches us plainly. No, the, the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to his elect. In other words, Jesus' blood atones for the sins of his sheep. You personally had your sin paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. That makes an impact. That, that makes it get real awfully quick. Expect to understand that in order to walk through the open door of God, you must repent and believe. Uh, you know, a moment ago, one of our elders read that passage from 1 Corinthians about remaining as you were when you're called into Christ. Some people have taken that passage and abused it, twisted it, and said, Oh, well, God wants me to remain as I was. Uh, well, I used to do this and this and this, and, and I practiced this type of lifestyle, and, and this tells me that God wants me to stay in that lifestyle. But now I'm forgiven, and I'm one of His. No, that's not what that passage means. Uh, that passage is talking about externals, about things that are immutable. It's not talking about sin. To walk through the open door of Jesus, God demands that we repent of our sin, we turn from it, we take concrete steps to eliminate it from our life, and we turn to Him in faith, acknowledging that those things are sinful, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, living for Jesus as best as we possibly can. It doesn't mean all our sins are going to be wiped out in an instant, and, and all of a sudden we're not going to have any struggles at all. No, but it does mean there's going to be a different attitude towards sin. Scripture says, hate what is evil. We are to hate our sin and love God. So expect that. Expect to rejoice and worship when you experience the forgiveness of God. Brothers and sisters, you know, there, there is no other feeling in the world of knowing that your sins have been forgiven. The penalty that you deserve has been paid for. The slate has been wiped clean. You stand before God clean and spotless. There is nothing that, that, that prevents you from having fellowship with God. You know with certainty, with the, with the promises of Scripture and the authority of, of Jesus Christ, that you are going to be with God forever and there is nothing that can separate you from His love and His grace and His forgiveness. That is an incredible feeling and that will result in a desire to worship God and to draw near to Him in worship. Expect a filling of the Holy Spirit and a new life that can only be described as being born again. Expect being filled by the Holy Spirit and having a new life that can only be described as being born again. A radical change. Now, of course, we're Reformed here. We, we believe the biblical doctrine of, uh, of grace and of calling and election. So 
when it comes to coming to Christ, there are going to be many people that, that grow up in Christ and grow up in the church, and they don't have that defining, put your finger on the moment when you, when you came to Christ and all of a sudden you knew that, that you were saved and you hadn't been before, or that, that dramatic conversion experience of, of the, the hardcore drug addict or the, the, you know, the street life that was filled with crime, and then all of a sudden the next day now you're, you're, you're living for Jesus. Not everybody has that type of dramatic conversion experience. There are a lot of people, especially covenant children, who grow up in the church, and they've never known anything different than serving and loving the Lord. Those are valid testimonies. So we're not necessarily looking for a, a moment, or you know, kind of line in the sand where you've come to Christ, but we are going to, to see this. And especially with uh, unbelieving family members and friends who, who maybe have lived apart from him, and then now start to live from. You will see a new life. You will experience it. And expect God to be with you always. Now is the time to walk through that open door. Now is the time to walk through the open door of Jesus Christ. Because at some point, that open door will be shut. It will be shut. Luke 13, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. The door eventually will be shut, and no one will be able to say, well, I didn't know it was open. There was a high school math teacher, and at the beginning of every semester, he, before anything else, as he was going through, you know, kind of issuing textbooks or, or any, all those first day events, he would tell the class, I have an open door policy. This math is going to get tough. You're in high school now. This isn't basic algebra. So I want you to know I'm available 30 minutes before school, 30 minutes after school, and if you have a study hall that coincides with one of my prep periods, I'll write you a hall pass. You're welcome to come and see me. The students usually blank stares, but every once in a while, probably one or two students per semester took him up on his offer and came in for extra help. Well, one student who had heard that got to the end of the semester and they got a D plus. And they were kind of a, a, a B student. They had an occasional C or A sprinkled in there, but they were kind of middle of the road, 3.0 B student. And he came home with his report card, and, and Mom saw the report card and said, what happened? He said, I don't know, it was just tough stuff. She said, well, did you ask for help? He said, yeah, I don't know, it's just not really enough time. She said, okay. So she made an appointment to see this, this math teacher and very respectfully said, you know, I, usually the B student ACCs, this, this, is, this is kind of an anomaly, and I'm just wondering, it might have helped if, if you would have made yourself available and, you know, kind of gave him some, some extra help once in a while. And he, and he said there just wasn't enough time for that. And the teacher said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I tell all my students at the very beginning, I have an open door policy, 30 minutes before class, 30, or 30 minutes before school, 30 minutes after, and your student did have a study hall that coincided with one of my prep periods, and he could have come and seen me. So I understand that that's a low grade, but it's not because I wasn't available. And the mom said, I see. And she went home and had a different conversation with, with her son. It wasn't the teacher's fault. 
it was the son's fault for not taking advantage of the open door policy. Likewise, scripture teaches us there will be a day when that open door will be closed and no one will be able to stand before the judge and say, well, you, you didn't really make yourself available enough. Um, I expected you to, to come down to earth, maybe, or, or I expected you know, you to be a little more <coughs> open and accessible and uh, it just seemed like you couldn't be found. God was like, no, 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 no. No, I did come down to earth. I, I became incarnate as, as a man. And I shed my blood for you. And that open door has been proclaimed in faithful churches for thousands of years, every Sunday. In fact, you've been within driving distance of several faithful churches that have proclaimed the message in the open door of Jesus Christ. There's no excuse for not walking through it when you had time. Our day in court with God is coming, whether we are seeking it or not. No one will be able to stand before God and be acquitted by their own righteousness, but he can be found. And this is the message I hope we give to our unbelieving family members and friends during this Christmas season. He can be found. Now is the time to walk through that open door. Well, the man was standing before the receptionist being told to either make an appointment or leave. So he left. And he went out to his car and he, he typed into his phone, Dentist's near me, and he drove to the next nearest dentist. And he walked in and the receptionist greeted him with a smile and said, How may I help you? He said, I think I broke my tooth. Can I see the doctor? And she said, Just a minute. And she went back and then a minute later she came and she said, Come on back. And she showed him to a seat, to a, to a chair, and she gave him a clipboard with some paperwork to fill out. She said, The dentist will be back in just a minute. And the man said, really? She smiled and said, yes. And she left the room. And just a moment later, the dentist came in and, and took a look and said, yep, you broke a tooth. And he said, doctor, I just want to say thank you for seeing me at such short notice. And the doctor said, sure, yeah. I understand what it's like to be in pain. And so I have an open-door policy. No appointment necessary for dental emergencies. God is not an aloof VIP He's not a reclusive hermit who cannot be found. God's schedule is never too full or too busy to see someone who draws near to him. He has an open-door policy for sinners like you and me. Pass this message on to family and friends. God can be found. Tell them that God has an open-door policy, and that open door is the person, Jesus Christ. Turn to him in faith. Walk through that open door now, because there will be a day when that open door is shut. Amen. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your open door policy. We thank you that unlike Job, who from his perspective thought you couldn't be found, in fact, you can. You have revealed yourself most fully in your son. You continue to reveal yourself through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your, your powerful word. And Father, we ask that we would be used by you to present this good news of Jesus Christ, the open door to God. And we pray in advance for those that we would speak to that they would be ready to receive this message, that your spirit would work on their hearts so that when they hear the words of truth, the words of Jesus Christ, that they respond in repentance and belief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.